Carl Safina is some, uh, a name that some of you may recognize. Uh, Carl Safina is one of the most uh, spiritually astute atheists that I know. Um, his recent book is Beyond Words, How Animals Think and Feel. It's, it's an amazing book. I, I had the honor of meeting Carl in 2006, a series of fortunate events. And we hit it off and we ended up doing some bridge building events involving faith leaders and scientists over the environment. And uh, in that uh, correspondence that I had with, with Carl, we talk on the phone sometimes, email each other as we're working on this project together. By email, Carl told me his story about losing his faith. So he grew up, I think, in the pre-Vatican uh, Catholic Church, pre-Vatican II Catholic Church. He writes this, my uncles uh, had a boat, he lived on Long Island, and occasionally invited my dad to join them. But an invite to him was not an automatic to include me. When I was about nine, I did get one of those very rare invitations. I'd been fishing and on the boat before, so I knew it was the most exciting thing imaginable. When my father said I could go, I was leaping for joy. One problem. It was this Sunday. Sunday. I was in Catholic school and knew missing Mass on Sunday was a mortal sin, period. You died before confession, any time in the next five days, and you were in the middle of a hundred burning Christmas trees forever. Quite, a, quite an image of hell, I thought. <laughs> but by then I could think a bit. So I went to talk to the priest. Gotta be some wiggle room. Could I go on Saturday? No. Twice on Sunday, on Monday, no. Every day, whole, the whole next week, no. Twice on Saturday, no. He said, I'm sorry, but you have to go to Mass on Sunday. I could not believe the creator of the universe would demand I sit in church again and only on that one day while missing time with my father and uncles, doing the most exciting thing possible, being out on his glorious ocean. But the thing is, I stayed home and went to Mass. And the church lost me that day because as I thought, this just can't, it just cannot be right. It can't be what God wants. It cannot be what He cares most about. These people are capable of getting it wrong. He's nine years old. And as far as the Catholic Church and me, that was that. I went to church off and on for a few more years, but every time I could see the wizard behind the curtain, the gloss was off. I don't remember going to confession anymore or worrying about missing a Sunday. And by the time I was about 12, I was pretty much gone. God might be, but he could not possibly be that rigid or small. It was going to have to be between him and me. And eventually, by my early 20s, my praying could no longer drown out all those suffering innocents. I do thank the church, though, for telling me I should care about those suffering innocents. I think I would have gotten there from any of several directions, but the church was the first to get me there. That email came to me, I think it was in maybe 2007, 2008. Uh, in 2009, I get this email from Carl. When you get a moment, explain how Jesus died for our sins. He's got that for our sins in quotes. I've never gotten that. Keep it short or I won't understand. 
Everyone is so resonating with that. August 15, 2009, he wrote, wrote me that. I think it took me a month to give him a response. He couldn't have known it, but this is the question that had plagued me for 35 years of following Jesus. Many of those years, I was a pastor and should have known better. One thing I learned, you can follow Jesus with basic questions unanswered. My response to Carl was, um, it was noble, but it was lame. I actually tried again in 2012 in an Easter sermon, and I think I got closer, but I, as I looked over the sermon, I was only circling around his question. I wasn't addressing it. So this is take three for Carl. So Carl's question, uh, yes? It could, the, repeat the question. When you get a moment, explain how Jesus died for our sins. I've never gotten that. Thank you. So Carl's question is provoked by a line in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 written by Paul. It's probably the earliest summary, uh, a written summary of the gospel that we have available to us. He was writing long before the gospels were uh, compiled and available in written form. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So if we're going to the phrase that elicited Carl's question, Christ died, that's a, that's a relatively uncontested historical fact. Our sins, it's certainly like a, it's, it's an ex existential fact. It's a fact of our existence that most of us can recognize that we fall short of our own expectations. And sandwiched between these two facts, if you will, is this little word for. Christ died for our sins. Carl's question is essentially, what does it mean to say Christ died for our sins? The Greek word, the original language is hooper, who pairs, as it's pronounced. Uh, the definition is, is rather fluid. There are many possibilities in behalf of, uh, for the sake of, uh, this translation uh, translated simply for, uh, could also be beyond, more than, like the English hyper. Uh, the for only makes sense in a larger story, right? I mean, like, I'm here for you, means different things if the speaker standing at the door is your best friend or the ice officer at your door, right? The context makes, means everything for the, the backstory for that little word for makes a huge difference. So Paul is actually alluding to a backstory when he says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, which was his scriptures, the Hebrew Bible as we call it. You can pull a lot of backstories 
from the Hebrew scriptures. It's a very diverse set of writings and you can pull out lots of different themes and lots of back, different backstories, if you will. But what's the backstory that makes sense of Christ died for our sins? Uh, I don't want to lose you with technical theological jargon, but I'm going to take the risk that the backstory to this question is called atonement theory. Atonement, at one It's like how are we made at one or reconciled with God. So there, there are different atonement theories that have held sway in the church at different periods in history. There's not just one, there's many. Uh, in the second century, the backstory, the atonement theory that was prevalent was when we sin, we became the property of the devil who held us captive. Christ died in order to pay the devil ransom to set us free. And you know, maybe that made sense in a world where actually most human beings were owned by other human beings, but now it doesn't make so much sense. We don't view that as a normal part of existence. That's something wrong when that's happening. This atonement theory was replaced a thousand years later with what is still the most influential atonement theory probably at least in the American church and it goes like this Christ's death didn't pay off the devil it paid off God the Father who was so filled with just wrath because of our sins that he required the bloody sacrifice of his son Jesus to be assuaged or mollified or pacified mm, yeah really that's like really Maybe this made sense in a violent world where strong men kept the peace by threatening more violence. <laughs> and that was viewed as, well, it's good to have such a strong man around. It keeps us all more safe. But a God who kills his son to pacify his own wrath seems, seems creepy to me. <laughs> um, you know, besides, I can forgive people who sin against me without requiring a bloody sacrifice. <laughs> I mean, is it really too much to ask God to be more loving than me? I, I hope not. So what, what kind of a backstory that would be embedded in the, in the Hebrew Bible would make better sense of Christ died for our sins? I think actually, as I was rereading uh, Carl's email, the story of his losing faith, I think the answer was actually hidden in uh, plain sight in his email and I missed it many years ago when I read his email. Remember, he wrote at the end, and eventually, by my early 20s, my praying could no longer drown out all those suffering innocents. A common, you know, how can there be a loving God when there's all, this, all these innocent people suffering around us? Then he added, I do thank the church, though, for telling me I should care about those suffering innocents. I think I would have gotten there from any of several directions, but the church was the first to get me there. So the suffering innocence was what he latched onto. Actually, care for the suffering innocence became uh, Carl Safina's life, life's work. I mean, his, his message was essentially, we're unnaturally detached from nature. So we do things to needlessly increase the suffering of other creatures. And, and all of his books, if you read any of his books, they're all about one theme and it's reconnecting us so that we actually care. Concern for the suffering innocence is actually the backstory to Christ died for our sins. 
So the crime of humanity, in other words, the unique crime of human beings, and the one that is exposed, in a sense uniquely, in the Hebrew scriptures, is the crime of scapegoating, in which suffering innocents who are thought to be guilty are mistreated in order to give an anxious community an outlet for its internal tensions, bringing that community a sense of temporary peace. It was a René Girard student of ancient myth points out, the ancient world was awash with stories, myths of guilty people who were killed or expelled by their communities and that expulsion restored peace and harmony to the community. So Oedipus and Romulus and Remus, the founding of Rome's story, the stories of the plagues in the Middle Ages that were only stopped when the community expelled the gypsies or expelled its Jews. These are all the same stories. And the storytellers in, the, in this ancient telling always assumed the guilt of these people who were driven out. But in the Hebrew Bible, which was also an ancient text, these figures strangely are innocent not guilty. I mean, it's not strange to us because we get it now, but in the ancient world it was strange. These figures who were expelled in order to bring peace to the group were portrayed in the stories themselves as innocent, not guilty. So Abel is innocent in Genesis 4. Joseph, who's left for dead in a well by his brothers who are jealous of him, is innocent. Hagar, who's sent into the wilderness by jealous Sarah, is innocent. Job, famously, is innocent, though his friends assume that he was guilty. This is our worst, our distinctly human crime. We resolve our internal group conflicts, whether the group is a family or a workplace or a classroom or a society, by targeting a vulnerable member, usually who's a little bit different. We accuse that person or that minority group of faults that we're blind to in ourselves. So the scapegoats de jour include Muslims, immigrants, global financiers, you know, code for the Jews, Black Lives Matter, the dishonest press. There's always some other who's causing our problems. And so when we stigmatize, when we isolate, when we silence, when we oppress that group, it brings us peace. It makes us feel better about ourselves. We don't have to face the stuff in us that is causing us to project that guilt on them. We turn to this mechanism again and again, forever blind to the innocence of the victims and our own guilt when we're part of the scapegoating mob. It's like we're in a we're in a, in a, like a, in a zone, we just don't see it. Scapegoating is that thing we do. It's that thing we do as human beings and we don't cop to. The only way to undo it is to unmask it. And this is the purpose and history of the God's dealings with Israel recorded in the Hebrew Bible. So back to 1 Corinthians 15. After Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, Paul says what? He says the risen Christ appeared first to Cephas, this Aramaic name for Peter, and last of all to him, to the, to the writer, to Paul, who was known as Saul originally. Both these figures 
are founding members of what we might call Scapegoaters Anonymous, which is really what the early church was meant to be. Paul's case was obvious why he was part of the first founding member of Scapegoaters Anonymous. He writes right here in 1 Corinthians 15, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle. And he had a high view of himself. He was, he was quite capable of bragging about himself and his superiority. But he says, I'm unfit to be an, a, a, called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Um, Peter belonged to scapegoaters anonymous too. It's a little less obvious to us, but he was a silent bystander, remember? When Jesus was arrested, it was Peter who was warming his hands by the fire, and he was asked if he had any connection with Jesus, and he denied connection to Jesus when the scapegoating mechanism had been triggered against Jesus. If this is the backstory, then Jesus died for our sins means he died on account of our scapegoating ways. That was the cause of our sins. That, uh, that was the cause of his death. That was the center of the meaning of what it represented and what it was designed to reveal. It was actually part of God's long effort to unmask the scapegoat mechanism, not just to the Jewish people, but now to the Gentiles as well, to unmask this thing for what it is. If you've ever been scapegoated, you know that if you like raise your hand in an objection and say, excuse me, you're scapegoating me, you, you, rarely does that bring, bring revelation to the person who is scapegoating you. They're blind to what they're doing. The resurrection in this understanding isn't just about Jesus beating death. Good for you, you're risen from the dead, you're awesome. Because you're risen, we worship you. No, that's not what it's about. He is risen, but the significance is this is God's declaration in the resurrection of Jesus of the innocence of all who have ever been scapegoated, of whoever will be in the future scapegoated. This is God's declaration in the resurrection of Jesus that the scapegoats are innocent, not guilty as everyone else thinks. What did the risen Jesus say to Paul on the road to Damascus? He references how the risen Jesus appeared to him and to Cephas and the others. What was the revelation of the risen Jesus to Paul on the road to Damascus when he was going to complete his work of harassing the, the Jesus followers in, uh, in his hometown of Damascus in Syria? He had a vision at noon. He was having his noonday prayers. A blinding light came round him and he heard a voice that said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's like, who are you? <laughs> and it, this is Jesus of Nazareth speaking. Saul never laid a hand on Jesus of Nazareth. Saul probably never saw Jesus in the flesh. He was after other meat. He was after fellow Jews who took Jesus as their rabbi. But Jesus takes the suffering of fellow innocent victims personally. What does this mean? God stands with the scapegoated. 
He stands with the innocent victims thought to be guilty by the anxious, immoral mob. And this doesn't really have so much meaning when, oh yeah, we realize that scapegoating is happening. It's, it has meaning when we're in the middle of that mob and we're feeling the unifying effect of the mob and it somehow just feels so good to have somebody to blame. In the middle of that is the revelation from God. God stands with that person. God stands with that group of people. To follow Jesus is to be attuned as Carl Safina was in his 20s when he wrote that, when he uh, referred to that in his email to me, is to be attuned to the suffering of innocent victims. To follow Jesus is to wake up, it's to see scapegoating for what it is while it's happening and to stand with whoever it is the mechanism is targeting at that moment. To follow Jesus is to be immersed in the spirit of Jesus. We're going to be having a baptism soon and there's a tank behind this altar here filled with water. Water is a symbol of the spirit. To be immersed in the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is to be immersed in the spirit that Jesus gave a special name to. There were many names for the Holy Spirit in the Hebrew Bible. Jesus had his own unique name for the Spirit. It was in Greek paraclete and it means defender of the accused. Everyone who is plagued by accusing thoughts in your head, come to this water and dive in. What is it that makes our lives most miserable? It's when we internalize the perceived accusations of others and now those accusations have our own voice behind them. To be immersed in the spirit of Jesus is to be immersed in the spirit that defends the accused, even when the accused is us. And I'm telling you, this is a vision of God that when you get it and when you let the significance of it settle over you, this is a God that you can be unguarded with. We can let this God get close uh, to comfort, uh, to calm us, to guide us. Did I mention that Carl's first book is titled Song for the Blue Ocean? Uh, actually, when um, it became clear that the Blue Ocean needed to become a church uh, network, I actually called Carl Safina because his institute was called the Blue Ocean Institute. And I thought, oh, we might have a trademark situation. And I said, we're, we've got this network. We've been using this term Blue Ocean for years, but we're thinking of becoming like a real thing. And, like, and he, he writes back, well, I asked my treasurer, and it would be trademark infringement. But fortunately, we're getting rid of the name. And it, we're, be, we're, we're not the Blue Ocean Institute anymore. We're the Carl Safina Institute. I'm like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> to me, the Blue Ocean is a symbol of the wide world that God loves. The, the world, all the land masses, we're connected by ocean. And none of us, you know, no corporation can claim the ocean. No billionaire can claim the ocean. No nation, no ethnicity can claim the ocean. None of it belongs to us. 
This understanding of the gospel, I think, is our song for the blue ocean. Amen.